This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, a better practice, and a better life. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. And uh, we now have officially, I think, a, a Democratic elect Joe Biden uh, as the president. And we know that the Democrats have adopted modern monetary theory as, as part of their platform. And the question is, how does that affect, how does, how is that going to affect us as CPAs in um, how the tax system works, how we work with our clients, how we do, you know, what tax returns look like. Uh, you know, the, if you read anything about modern monetary theory, you know that they have a very different view of the role of taxes. And we're very lucky today, very fortunate to have an amazing guest, Joe Thorndike. Um, Joe's a tax historian. He's with tax analysts. I'm going to let uh, Joe, I'm going to let you give a, a little bit about your background, but I'm just very excited to have this because I, I'm a, I'm a, I love tax history myself. Uh, I was part of tax history in 1986 when I was back in the, in uh, Washington following the, in the National Tax Office for Ernst and & Winnie. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have you on the program. So thank you, Joe, for being here. Well, it is my pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I am a, a tax historian. I got a weird uh, little niche that I live in, right? Um, it, is, it has gotten a little bigger over the decades that I've been doing it, but it's still, a, it's still a, a, an odd little specialty. But I've been working at Tax Notes for 25 years, a little bit more now. Um, and uh, while I've been there, I, I do two things. So I do, I do write a lot about history. Um, and that's, you know, not, not surprising. I have a PhD in history and 20th century US politics, essentially. Um, but uh, I also write about policy, right? And I, uh, I've taught tax policy classes uh, at uh, Northwestern University and, and, and that sort of thing. So I have a sort of a one foot in the history world and one foot in the tax world. And that's sort of been my, my gig for quite some time now. It's, a, it's, a, it's unusual. It's a strange mix, but it works for me. You know what? That that that's great, and uh, I, I I want you to know I was um, I saw you just uh, a a week or two ago at the National Tax Conference, and I thought oh, this is exactly the right guy um, for this topic. So if if you would, if you'd start out because you know I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. How do you describe modern monetary theory, and how do you describe modern monetary theory as it affects taxes? So one at a time. How would you describe modern monetary theory? Well, I mean, I'll start off by saying that there's no way that I'm going to describe it that actually does it justice, right? It's so easy to caricature, and there's more to it than the caricature, and and, and we should talk about that. But um, but let's just let's just like let's start with the caricature, <laughs> which is essentially uh, it's the observation that countries um, with their own currencies can never really go bankrupt. They can never really run out of money. It's that's an observation, right? They can always turn on the printing press and, and pay their bills by simply printing more money. I mean, that is a fact. And, and, and it is a, and, and the modern monetary theory sort of takes off from that, that observation among others. Um, that then generally people take a leap from that to say that uh, modern monetary theory assumes that deficits don't matter. And 
To some extent, that's true, but the, uh, the, the believers in this theory would, would object to that, and they would say they don't believe that, that deficits don't matter. They just think that they, it takes a long time before they matter, right? That they could be much, much, much bigger before they matter. But, uh, but again, the idea is, uh, and, and I, we are um, oversimplifying here, but I think that the practitioners, the believers of this idea would say that deficits uh, as we conceive of them now are, even the big ones that we have now, are much too small. <laughs> they are, are much smaller than they could be, and that we are underinvesting relative to what we should be spending uh, in, the in, the in the public sector. Uh, and that we don't need to, we are, we are needlessly worrying about deficits um, when what we really should be thinking about are the investments that we should be making. And so it sort of deprioritizes this budget balancing idea um, and, and, uh, and, and tries to emphasize this concept of investment instead. So I'm trying to put it in the most positive light possible, um, but also recognizing that here, you know, we've already sort of flagged the problem here, right? that there is this sort of deficits don't matter idea lurking around and, and it is to some degree a slander and to some degree a deserved slander. Uh, so. <laughs> so, okay, so um, if we can spend a lot more money, meaning that we could uh, probably solve our uh, infrastructure problems without raising taxes, we really don't need to go through this annual budget uh, shutting down the government whole idea um, I, I think that would be welcome, actually, to a lot of people. Um, but how does it, you know, one of the things as I read about modern monetary theory, they talk a lot about taxes and, and what's the purpose of taxes. So how do you describe the purpose of taxes within modern monetary theory? Well, I mean, so the traditional idea here, and we could, as a historian, let's roll back the clock a little ways, right? Let's roll back the clock all the way to like the 1920s when the idea of everybody believed, hey, budgets need to balance. And you know, sometimes they don't, and that's a bad, bad thing, and we won't let it go on for long, and we'll get it back into balance soon. And that was received wisdom on both sides of the aisle. Um, and so the idea then was, we're gonna collect some taxes, and we're gonna get the money together, and we're gonna use it to pay for things that we need, right? So you have, it's like a household. And, and uh, economists object to that um, analogy all the time. But it really did uh, prevail for a long time. Like your household, you earn a certain amount of money, and then you figure out what you're going to, you know, then you spend it as you need to. But you didn't decide first, like, oh, I want to go out and buy this great big house, and then figure out, okay, now how am I going to earn the money to do that, right? That's backwards. Well, the, the modern monetary theory people would say, no, 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 no. <laughs> the way the government should do this is that you decide what you want to spend money on, and then we'll talk about the taxes afterwards. <laughs> because the, 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 the taxes don't constrain the spending. The spending decisions come first, the taxing decisions come later. That's a flip of what we traditionally think of in, in, in the you know, governmental budgeting, where the taxes are at least notionally constraining the spending. Now, one thing that modern monetary theory uh, advocates will say is we're simply living in the real world while the rest of you people are living in this fantasy <laughs> world, right? It hasn't, taxes haven't constrained spending in 40 years, 50 years, you know, whatever, right. uh, basically since World War II. Um, and so for as long as anyone alive can remember, we have made our spending decisions first and the taxes have come trotting along afterwards anyway. So we're just making sense of the world as it exists right now. And I, I will say that this is the point 
where modern monetary theory has won its, its most unlikely supporters, right? So there are people on Wall Street who like this theory, or don't, maybe liking it is too strong, but who see things that are valuable in this theory because uh, MMT tries to figure out some things that traditional economics doesn't explain very well, right? right? Um, it doesn't, traditional economics doesn't explain very well why you can run these ginormous deficits for year after year after year and why we don't have runaway inflation. Because traditional economics says we should have runaway inflation. That borrowing that the federal government is doing should be crowding out private investment. Uh, it should be, it should be uh, spurring uh, runaway inflation. It should be uh, slowing growth. And it hasn't done that. And that's perplexing. Right. And a lot of us, and I, I'm basically sort of like a milquetoast moderate is really what I am. I'm one of those people who says, eh, this is okay, but I have a feeling that, you know, the music is going to stop at some point <laughs> at that party will be over at some point. But, um, but that's all, that's my only answer. And the MMT people say they're trying to come up with an answer that's better than that. You know, why this might not be true. So, um, you know, to just take, to get back to your original question, to get back to the taxes, you know, their, their argument is uh, on the taxes is that we don't need to be thinking about the taxes as pay-fors for spending. We need to be thinking of taxes as doing two things that are really important. We <laughs> um, Remember, we started with the idea that a country that has its own currency, its own sovereign currency, can never run out of, its, uh, of money. Well, it needs to have its own currency. People have to use it. One way to make sure that people use it is by imposing taxes on them that they have to pay in that currency. So that's one part. I mean, it seems ridiculous, right? On its face, that seems. So the only reason we impose taxes is so that people have to pay taxes in that currency. Yeah, if you think about it, that's, the, that, that make, that's what make, gives the dollar strength is that you have to pay your taxes with it. If you didn't, you could use Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any, any other type of currency, but you can't pay your taxes in that. And so therefore the dollar has some strength that Bitcoin wouldn't have, right? Right, exactly. This is the one place where, the, where we can say, this is the only currency that's acceptable. So you have to use it. You're going to have to therefore earn it. You're going to have to work in this currency. So that's one point of taxes. The other point, and this is actually very important to MMT, is that, you know, MMT says deficits don't matter. You can spend as much as you want, more or less. And what about inflation? Because they do recognize that inflation is a problem. And they say, no problem. The tax system will take care of the inflation, right? When, when inflation rears its ugly head, we'll just tax it away, which is a traditional use of taxation. We did that during World War II. They used taxes to, to hold back inflation. And that's very Keynesian. You know, that's a, that's a, that, that's a, that is, this is a rock solid traditional notion of what we use taxes for. So let, let's say that, um, all right, so we'll, we'll pretend that George is going to go Democrat. And right. so that we've got Democrats in all three houses. Okay. Right. So, and they, and so then the, and let's say the Democrats all get together. It's not really like herding cats, which, which it is with the Democrats, but they actually get together on this and they could do whatever they wanted from an MMT standpoint. Um, the question is how would, with MMT as kind of the backbone to your thought process, how does that change how they use, how would, might they use taxes uh, differently 
then has been then taxes have been used historically as a pressure point basically taxes have been used as a pressure point they've been used for stimulation they've been used for all sorts of incentives i mean you know i'm uh, actually one of the things we talk about in my book is uh taxes are a series of incentives and that's basically what they are that since the 1960s especially taxes have been used uh, more for incentives than they have been for raising money so right. Uh, you know, the question is, will that change? How will that change? How does the tax system change? Because, you know, we're a bunch of CPAs. <laughs> Our livelihood is the tax system, and we want to know, how's that going to change? Well, I, I, I have a couple thoughts on that. But, um, you know, one, the first is that I'm not convinced that the, even if the Democrats win those two Georgia Senate seats, which I don't, I'm not convinced they're going to do, but <laughs> there are a lot of skeptics uh, uh, in the uh, in the Democratic caucus, I don't think Joe Manchin from West Virginia is a big MMT guy, or mm -hmm. Kristen Cinema from Arizona, or on a number of others. So uh, I tell my Republican friends in Washington all the time, I think that they should just relax a little bit, because talk about narrow majorities. This would be a 50 seat majority plus the vice president. Right. It's going to be extremely hard to get things through that. <laughs> So anyway, I'm not so sure that there's that MMT has much of a future in the Senate. But even if it did, um, you know, one thing about MMT is that there are conservatives who like it because it suggests by decoupling taxes from deficits, uh, you can start to think, well, then what about tax cuts? If it if it means we can spend as much as it want, we well, want we can cut taxes. You can cut taxes as much as you want. So there are a lot of. Uh, there are a lot of very conservative Wall Street guys who've been entranced by the MMTI concept because they think, well, wow, we could do this on the other side of the ledger and, and cut taxes as much as we want. So um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a license to do what you want for, for anybody. And, and so if, you, if what you want is national health care, great. If what you want is a trillion dollar infrastructure program, great. Or if what you want is another trillion dollar tax cut, great for that too. So. So, so, so how do, how do you combine this idea of the, the, the Democrats that we need to tax the rich um, and we need to tax them a lot, okay? Because if you look at, like, for example, Biden's estate tax plan would, you know, conceivably, though I don't think it had happened, conceivably would amount to a confiscation of, of, of family farms and, and family businesses, frankly, um, over a certain amount. Um, the, you know, the talk about a 40% capital gains rate, right? You know, I mean, that's another huge tax on, on business owners, right? As they sell their business, for example. And then, you, you know, you've got this whole idea that then that we're going to transfer all this money. Now, my theory is money never goes from the rich to the poor. It goes from the, the business owner to the bureaucrat. I, I don't think it ever gets to the poor, frankly. So, um, but, but how does that affect, how does the, the MMT thought process affect, you know, how does that work when the Democrats are talking about this whole, we need to tax the rich more? Huh. Well, I, I mean, I think to some degree the, um, the progressive tax platform elements of the, of the democratic platform, um, to some degree they're about raising money and to some degree they're about making a statement, right? They're, they're, it, there's a symbolic element to, to, that, uh, and a, to, to those tax policies. Um, again, I would be shocked 
if any of that tax policy has legs in this next administration. I mean, if you'd asked me on October 30th, I, I would have thought, yeah, your clients should be thinking seriously about that because it looked like it was going to be a Democratic sweep. You know, the Republicans did extremely well down ballot, um, much better than anybody thought they would. I, I read today in the paper that, that President Trump looked at one of his advisors and said, why me? Everybody down, all these Republicans down ballot one, and I'm going to And I mean, maybe maybe he should do some thinking about that. Maybe he should think about that. <laughs> that is the reality, that Democrat, Republicans down ballot did very well. I think if there were something like 17 toss-ups in the House, and the Republicans won every single one of them. So at the end of the day, the Republicans, the Democrats have a very narrow majority in the House, and and probably a majority in this, and the Republicans probably have a majority in the Senate. So I, I, I mean, you keep asking me how this is going to affect the Democrats' decision-making in the Senate, and it's hard for me to answer that because I just don't think it's going to affect it at all because I don't think they're going to have a majority in the Senate, and even if they do, it's going to be with people like Joe Manchin who are just not going to go along with this. So it's, it's, I mean, I, I get that in the short term, uh, Joe, but um, let's look long term because the country is definitely drifting left. I mean, there's, there's no question the country's uh, uh, drifting towards, uh, there's more liberal, uh, the millennials, which are my kids, um, they are very much drifting left. And, uh, and so there, I think there will be continued pressure on this in the long term um, to, to move this way. And while it may not be the next two years, it may be the two years after that. We'll you know, have to see what Biden does. Or it may be four years from now. But at some point, you, you got to think that um, unless something drastic changes, we're going to get there. And, and my, my question really is whether it's now or four years or eight years from now, what happens when we do get there? Okay, well, so here's what, here's what I think the problem is with the NMT down the road. So, um, the, you know, if the theory is that um, you can spend as much as you want until inflation is a real problem, and then you have to tax away the threat of inflation, right? That's the theory. Well, the problem is that depends on lawmakers being willing to raise taxes to stop inflation. Now, I don't know what you think about lawmakers, but I do not regard them as particularly heroic. And so in the past, it, the only time they've really been willing to do that ever, ever, <laughs> was during World War II right. and World War I to some degree. They were willing, they were willing to do that. Uh, they were willing to impose pain to control inflation. They've never shown any willingness to do that since, and that job has instead been outsourced to the Federal Reserve. And, and you know, we have that great example of the Fed clamping down in the early 80s to try to control the runaway inflation, which they did. Um, but that wasn't Congress, right? Congress, in the meantime, was slashing taxes, right? They were in, they were in giveaway mode. So I think the problem comes when, let's say, we have nationalized health care, let's say a trillion or two trillion dollar infrastructure program, whatever we spend this money on, we spend money with reckless abandon, inflation becomes a threat, Congress does not act. Congress does not do the job. They don't do the second half of the job. They do not do the tax policy element of MMT. And I think that's where it fails. And, and so down the road, um, what they may do at that point the easy stuff, right? 
the, the soak the rich taxes are relatively easy, assuming right. you have the right lawmakers in charge. You have Democratic lawmakers in charge. They'll probably find it congenial to raise uh, the estate tax, uh, to revive and, and raise estate taxes. Uh, they'll find it congenial probably to raise corporate rates. Um, you know, there are, we all know uh, capital gains rates, a variety of ways that they could go about this. That would probably be pretty appealing to them. It doesn't actually pay big bills at the end of the day. So uh, I think that's where MMT runs up on the rocks in the long run, is that there's no, there's no political appetite for raising painful taxes on the middle class. And so if you really spend all that money, you end up with runaway inflation. I, 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 think, the, I think the music stops. I said this at my, at my talk last week. I think at some point, the game is, the jig is up. Um, well, and that's my concern, of course, is that, that at some point, you know, it's like you're on a sailboat and you're going out in the ocean, at, you know, do you turn the sail fast enough and can you even turn the sail fast enough? Right. And, you know, there, there's always that question to me is not only will longer Congress act fast enough, but can they even, can they even act fast enough? Because it's really easy to put money in, but right. to take money out is not so easy. Okay, which is really what you're talking about, um, because you're talking about massive tax increases. I mean, if you're paying for <clears throat> effectively decades of deficit spending, and right. you're trying to you're you're trying to turn on a dime, that 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 shit doesn't yeah. turn that fast. Yeah. Fiscal policy is relatively slow, in in that sort of environment, um, and there are ways you can try to speed it up. Uh, but and and we're better. We have better tools for speeding, doing it quickly now than we used to a long time ago. But you're right. It's not. It's not a. It's not an on-off switch. Um, so, okay. So practically speaking, where do you think the tax system is going? Um, uh, given where we are right now, given let's let's say the Senate stays Republican, or even if it doesn't, where do you think tax policy is going over the next? Um, four to 10 years, because that obviously affects everybody in our profession. I think the question is, um, what are they going to do with the expiring tax cuts that are going to be coming down the road in the next several years, but especially in about four or five years? Right. Um, I, you know, I think my money is always on the extension of expiring tax cuts, <laughs> at, at least for individuals. Um, well, Obama did it, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, they, they try to draw thresholds. Um, and I have a story that's coming out in tax notes this week um, about Biden's negotiating skills, right? He's, he's got this uh, reputation for being a negotiator. Uh, and he did negotiate a couple of deals with the Republicans in uh, 2010 and 2012. And those were the famous ones where they wanted to extend the tax cuts, but only for those making more than 250000 a year or or some other number. And actually that second number ended up being 400 or $450,000 a year. I, it's not clear actually whether, who got the good deal there. <laughs> In that second deal, actually none of the Democrats agreed to come to the signing, uh, uh, the signing ceremony at the White House, um, but Mitch McConnell did. <laughs> and, and he actually is quoted as saying, uh, this was a great deal for us. I don't know if the Democrats liked it. <laughs> so Biden might be a great deal maker, but I'm not sure who he's negotiating for sometimes. Um, but he, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, there might be, might be efforts to sort of limit the, the extensions to some degree. But, but, you know, again, if you've got a very narrow majority like this, it's not clear to me how successful those efforts are going to be. So I, I suspect that most of those tax cuts are going to be extended um, it's, it's a little early to say. And, and again, there's a, there's a midterm election in the meantime. 
and anything could happen. Uh, you know, in all likelihood, we have bad economic news today in terms of uh, new jobless claims, but in all likelihood, next year could be a banner year for the economy. Right. Um, and that could change the 2018 elections dramatically. So we don't really know what we're dealing with. The imponderables are, are too numerous to, to really know what's happening here. But, uh, you know, depending on what the what Congress looks like, we, we aren't sure. But I think in either case, most of those tax cuts are going to be extended. Um, even even things like 199A, I mean, like, who's going to repeal that really? I mean, it's just, there's such a constituency for it now. I mean, I'm no fan of that provision, particularly as a matter of tax policy. But once you have a constituency so invested in it, literally, I just don't see how, how you walk that back easily. All right, so just before we end, let's turn to state taxes for a little bit because states seem to have a little bit more freedom as mm -hmm. to what they do and a little more willingness. Um, and, and in my state, I'm in Arizona, right? So we just, we just voted ourselves an 80% tax increase, mm -hmm. all right? Which is like, uh, still is stunning to me that we could have done that. Hopefully it will get overturned in court, but nevertheless, um, this was very much, uh, I think, uh, a, a, it was very much a result of Joe Biden because Joe Biden said, I'm not going to tax anybody over $400,000. And so what the proponents of, of uh, this Prop 208, which uh, sent all this money to school districts um, said was, well, look, we're not going to tax anybody um, under $500,000, right? Or $250,000 single. And so um, that was that was the same language. They, I mean, they absolutely adopted Joe Biden's language. Oh, it's really easy to vote it's really easy to spend somebody else's money. Okay. So if that can happen in Arizona, which is not the bluest state in the union. Okay. It's not, I mean, it's, it's not entirely red state, but the reality is, is that Trump lost in Arizona because of Trump. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the Senate went to the Democrats because they're actually just better senators. Okay. Right. They're just better candidates. Right. In, in my opinion, that's why it went there. I don't think it went there because, because if you look at the rest of the down ballot in Arizona, it basically all went Republican. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So, so then the question is, so, but on the other hand, Colorado and Illinois both turned their tax increases down. So what do you see happening on the state front with from a tax increase standpoint i mean i think anyone who believes that <laughs> I, I i think i think the state i think states are flaky i think voters are flaky but so i think it's dangerous to read too much into you know it's it's it, to to see trends uh across the states right um it so voters will sometimes support tax increases if they see um, spending associated with it that they like, but it's a lot about it is in the framing of these questions, right? And if you, and again, if you frame the pain in certain ways, who's going to be paying versus who's not going to be paying, that can help swing the margins in a vote. Um, it's, but it's also very important, uh, and in terms of, uh, in terms of the votes to, to, to frame the spending and you know is this something we want to spend money on or something we don't want to spend money on but you often see those fail too it's very hard to predict i think how a state even a red state a traditionally red state or a traditionally blue state is going to vote on a given tax measure they surprise you all the time so i i think it is it is really i'm, I'm really reluctant to say oh i think the states are moving this way or that way because it just doesn't they don't follow any particular, they don't, they don't, they don't follow the trends to me. 
like that. Uh, I think that some states uh, are, well, I, that's all I can say. I mean, I just, I, I can never, I, I was surprised, I guess, that Illinois uh, went the way that they went on their progressive income tax. But on the other hand, like, who really wants a new progressive income tax, right? It's irritating. It's, a, it, it's something you don't have to deal with now. Would you really want it later? So you find people in a blue state are just like, yeah, I don't want it. Most people, if you ask them if they want a new tax, say no. Right. So, I mean, this is my in my study of history. You shouldn't think that Americans love taxes at all. Right. But neither do they hate them across the board. These these generalizations are, are not helpful. Uh, the voters make much more specific, individualistic, moment specific, nuanced decisions about tax policy. And, and so the, if I have as a historian, if I want to shoot down anything, it's the idea that Americans are anti-tax, you know, it was the Boston Tea Party and the blah, blah, blah. You know, that's a ridiculous oversimplification. But it's also an oversimplification to say, no, 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 we're happy to pay our taxes. None of that's true. So in the states, I just don't, I think, you know, if Arizona, a red state, is happy to vote itself a tax increase, wow, you know, and Illinois, a blue state, won't. Well, I think that that tells you everything you need to know. You're going to fight these tax battles in the states retail. And, and you're going to, yeah. every single ballot measure is going to have to be won or lost on the merits and maybe not even on the merits, but on the marketing. Um, it's it's going to, it's not, there's no trend here to, to try to, no wave to surf. Well, plus, uh, you know, you always have this option, right, with uh, the federal government believing in MMT to bail out the states. I mean, we see New York with a $32 billion deficit. How do they get that money? Well, the logical way is Nancy Pelosi rings that money out of, uh, frankly, out of the Senate in order to get a stimulus package, right, which is what she's been trying to do for the last six months, really, is to get that money to go to uh, California and, uh, and New York um, to pay for those deficits. I, I think what might be interesting to see is, is what happens with the salt cap uh, repeal, which, uh, you know, the Democrats have been, have been pursuing ever since it was enacted, uh, which is not a progressive change, right? <laughs> right. But, um, but also is obviously popular in blue states, crosses some lines. You know, there are red states that also like that idea occasionally. But that's a, you can talk about a state issue that is actually going to play out on the federal level, but has ramifications on the way states construct their tax systems. Um, I think that might be the biggest state issue going forward. Uh, and, and I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, in the next, you know, the next couple of years. That's something that might actually, you know, you might see something happen, but I doubt it. <laughs> Interesting. So um, if you can give any advice to CPAs, um, what they ought to be looking for, what they ought to be doing from a practice standpoint, practical things that they ought to be looking at, what would you give maybe two or three things that you would have CPAs doing that practice this on a daily basis? <laughs> yeah, I really, I don't know. I would, I would watch carefully, um, this is one of those moments where I think we need to watch carefully what's going on in Washington because things are on a knife's edge and, and, and how they turn out. Um, I, you know, I, you don't need me to tell you these elections in, in Georgia are important and everybody knows it. Um, it a, 50, a, a 50 plus vice president majority is not much, but it's still a majority. It will change things. So, uh, and it will change the practice of, of tax advisors everywhere to some degree, not like it would have if the Democrats had run the table. But it's going to matter on the margins. And, and it does, as any tax practitioner knows, tax, tax practice happens on the margins frequently. 
so I, I mean, uh, I, don't, I know that's not a, that's not very helpful this one because we have to wait another six weeks or whatever. But I think that's going to matter. Um, I don't know. I think that's it. I, I mean, I don't know what your uh, what I, what more help I can offer than that. I I think that, uh, that too much is up in the air. That this election is really still in an important sense undecided. Um, you know, the, the, what we have so far in terms of like who's getting named to the cabinet and such is, it's, is it should be um, reassuring to people that we are going to see major swing, swings in policy. Janet Yellen apparently is going to be Treasury Secretary, it's relatively an uncontroversial choice. So I don't know that that's going to really change much either. I wouldn't expect major policy changes to come out of that. So going forward, I think we're really in a, I think we're going to watchful waiting stage likely for two to four years. I don't think we're going to see major swings in tax policy. Um, so I know most practitioners are not are not you know watching the Washington action with bated breath, but um, I, you know this this is a this is an important an important couple of years to see if any element of the Democratic agenda gets enacted at all because it could be none. <laughs> it could it could be zero. It could be zero. That Mitch McConnell holds a pretty uh, pretty strong deck of cards there. That's for sure. So I, yeah. So, Joe, thank you so much. I understand you've got a new book. Is I don't know if it's oh, out no. or is it coming out? No new book yet. Just uh, just my tax notes story. So read tax notes. That's where you see. All right, read tax notes. Uh, uh, I'm big fan of tax notes. Big fa fan of your work and and everything at Tax Analyst. So thank you so much for Joe and uh, everybody listening and watching. Just remember that when we do pay attention, I, I think that's the big message here. We have to pay attention to what's going in Washington, what's going on in the different states, not just our own state, um, because it does have an impact and it will have an impact on our clients. And um, as you know, our clients want to know because their big, biggest concern is not knowing. And so I, I think that the more we know, the closer we watch, um, the better we can inform our clients, we keep them knowing, um, they become better clients. Uh, we always have a better practice and then that ends up being a better life. So thank you everyone and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>